Welcome to Sassy. I'm Annie Merlowski and I'm your host. Each week we share the inspiring stories of female leaders throughout the tech industry. Thanks for joining us as we dive into the inspiring stories of career growth and development from women who are leading technology as we know it. This week, I am so excited to welcome Esther Flammer, the CMO at Reich, onto the Sassy Podcast. I had the pleasure of working with Esther at Conga, and I'm so excited to chat with her today. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Today, we have Esther Flammer joining us from Reich. I have had the pleasure of working with Esther in a past role, and I'm so excited to get the chance to dig a little bit into her background as a female leader. So thank you so much, Esther, for joining us. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for asking me to be here. Really excited to to chat with the audience today. Awesome. Well, um, let's get started by learning a little bit about what you're doing today and what are some of the key milestones you feel in your career helped get you to the point that you are? Sure, absolutely. So let's see. I am CMO at Rike. We are a powerful work management platform that millions of customers around the world utilize every single day to basically manage their work more effectively and collaboratively. We actually, I was a past customer back when you and I were both at Conga. So we were Rike users and utilized Rike to help manage all of our marketing programs, production, content assets, events, all of that. So I already knew Rike really, really well. And then joining Rike a couple of years ago, was it was a lot it's been a lot of fun it's been a wild ride actually milestones that got me to where i am today i mean there's so many <laughs> uh is typical with i think when you are a full stack marketer so you know i began my career gosh 20 years ago and i started out really in nonprofit then went to agency and brand And then I got into B2B tech, which is really where I found my sweet spot and where I really grew my career. And the way that I kind of started to build out my career is I I kind of learned by doing in a way, um, as you know, a lot of us do. And really my focus was finding gaps in a really high growth organization and building out foundations that could scale. And that actually has served me really, really well in my career because I went from kind of general marketing, just kind of doing a little bit of everything, then focusing on customers because we really had absolutely no customer marketing. And that's oftentimes what you see with high growth companies. It's build a really great product, then sales, 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 and grow, grow, grow. And then all of a sudden, oh, we forgot about customers. We should probably talk to them and do more than just renew them every single year. So I implemented kind of our first life cycle programs, really thinking about, okay, where are they in the customer journey? How do we make sure that we are providing air cover and that we're providing a good level of expectations on, hey, you're onboarding, here's where to go, um, or you're about to renew, you're, you know, six months, three months before renewal, here's all of the value that we've provided, plus all of the things that happen with customer engagement and retention and education of, here's how to better utilize the solution better. And, and that actually got me into really actually the marketing automation world. And we were utilizing email to really build out these customer journeys, but there was so much more power and so much more that we could do really with the data and with building out the infrastructure. So then that turned into a marketing operations role. I built out all of the marketing um, infrastructure for campaigns and lead management and metrics and analysis and ROI and all of that. And then that then led into demand generation because 
you know, just lead triage and nurturing and scoring and, and really understanding what are the campaigns that are most effective at which point in the buyer's journey that was really important. And then I ended up actually doing all of customer lifecycle going from new buyer acquisition all the way through customer retention for our largest line of business, accounting for 90% of the business revenue. And that was really, really great for me because it gave me actually a lot of the skill sets that a full stack marketer needs to be able to drive overall, you know, revenue for the business. And so I spent a lot of time really focused on revenue marketing, which has actually been really good because every company needs to drive revenue. Uh, and that's a really big focus for, for marketing. And when you and I were both at Conga, you know, I was driving demand gen and revenue marketing for a few years at the company in a really high growth kind of uh, motion. And then when we got acquired, I stepped into an interim CMO role. That was another big milestone for me because it took me from really focusing just purely on revenue generation and actually owning all of the different functions within marketing. So corporate marketing and product marketing, which to me are absolutely foundational for demand gen revenue marketing to even work. You need really, really strong understanding of what's happening in the market. How are we positioned? You know, what is our differentiation? What's our value proposition? All of those things, when it, when it comes to actually building out a go-to-market strategy, has to be, you know, in lockstep with that revenue generation engine. So that was a really big milestone for me that led me then to, into that CMO path into where I am today. Sorry, that was a really long-winded answer. <laughs> but, no, but that's, that's awesome. And I think that that's, you know, a really unique perspective as a CMO that you get to take on looking at how does each piece of marketing yeah. work. I don't think everyone, at least I haven't worked for a lot of leaders who have had all of those different pieces in their background. And so that adds to your understanding of you're not just going into a department saying, this is what I think you should be doing. It's that you actually can give advice from what you know is to be true, which is different. Absolutely. And I think that is pretty critical. And when you see CMOs or leaders that have some of those gaps, they need to work even harder to try and fill those gaps in terms of just the general understanding of how do you connect the dots? What's the connective layer between brand, between corporate marketing, between content creation, between demand gen events and channels and digital and and true go-to-marketing, uh, go-to-market with, with product marketing. I think you really need to go the extra mile to truly understand all of the facets around each of those functions. And then obviously probably plug in some of those gaps where maybe you don't have quite as much of the technical knowledge with really core leaders. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I think that that's and it, it makes sense that you would then need to figure out how how do you learn that skill? How do you put the right leader in the seat that they can help teach you without it feeling like they don't have support? Right. There's a balancing game there. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really important as a CMO, which is you're not going to know everything. I mean, I'm not a functional expert in, in every single aspect of marketing, even though I've built most of it and I've run a lot of it. But you still need technical experts, but your job as a CMO is to provide that connective layer, which is how do they work together? How do you drive that higher level strategy in terms of corporate positioning, corporate narrative, messaging house? Like those are hugely important to have a unified vision and to be able to tell a story that your demand gen marketers are going to need. And for product marketing, building that into a place I'm really passionate actually about product marketing, even though I've never actually been a product marketer myself, like formally, but to me, this, these are the people who have their finger on the pulse of 
what is actually happening in this buying center, in these buying personas? Like, how do they buy? Who are the markets we should be going after? What's our TAM and our white space and bringing in market analysis and data, bringing in buying insights, bringing in better messaging on like, what's our differentiation? What's our value proposition? Why should they care? Bringing all of that in. And then again, feeding it across the organization and making sure your demand gen team knows, like your SDR teams, your sales teams, your product team, that you're actually informing what product roadmap looks product roadmap looks like versus just being handed, you know, here's our next launch. Uh, you need to be part of that conversation. So yeah, I, I, I love, I love actually bringing it all together into a holistic strategy. And that to me is what a good CMO should be doing. Definitely. I entirely agree. Cause that's, you want to not build silos. You want to create workflows and, and that's to an extent, you know, that's exactly what you're doing at right. Cause you're creating those workflows in a very tangible way for other yeah, organizations. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit, you know, when you were growing up, you probably didn't say you wanted to be a CMO. What did you want to be when you grew up? And do you think it relates to what you do now? Not at all. (laughs) So um, when I was growing up, I wanted to work with children, like first wanted to be a pediatrician and then wanted to be a teacher. And I even spent the first semester of my college years in elementary education because I'm like, this is what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a teacher. And then thought about it for a second and said, you know what? I actually don't think I have the patience to be with 20 kids every single day teaching them. And so didn't even know that much about marketing, but I was like, that sounds cool. Sure. Why don't I do that? And and at, at my college, it was basically you could either go into mass media, PR, advertising, and that was in the in the comms um, kind of area, or you could go into marketing, which is more in the business side. And I was like, well, I feel like maybe that's more marketable to ha- to get some business knowledge. So I just went to marketing. I don't think my passions. I don't think were that thought through, I guess, at that time of, I'm just going to be a teacher. My mom was a teacher. That's probably why I wanted to be one. I don't think that that's necessarily helped me in my career. Uh, But even like, I don't know, what I learned at college, I don't think was actually that useful, like in terms of like the four P's (laughs) and those kinds of things. Because again, you think of marketing and you do think of just like maybe B2C type of marketing or, or marketing for small businesses or whatnot. B2B marketing in tech is a completely different animal. And that was, again, as I mentioned, like the learning by doing of, of finding gaps, figuring out like, how do we do, how do we move forward? How do we drive things at scale? How do we think about the audiences? How do we, th- you know, how do we position? Honestly, it's a lot of just learning by experience and figuring things out and learning from peers and, you know, from thought leaders and things like that. Um, but yeah, drastic, drastic career change, I guess, for me as I was growing up. Well, both require a lot of critical thinking and being able to think on your feet. So there is a little bit of a correlation, but, you know, the actual do of what you're doing is very different. <laughs> For sure. And, you know, I do feel like I am a teacher in some ways, you know, in, in, in being kind of a coach and a mentor. And I do love that. That's actually something I am hugely passionate about is mentorship and wanting to share some of my experiences and my learnings, particularly with kind of earlier stage in their career women and, you know, uh, just general people in tech and things like that. And that, I guess that's maybe a correlation too. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. I I think you can, you know, that's the, that's the gem of marketing, right? Is that you can loosely tie things together almost in any way. Like that's one of the goals, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Absolutely. So is there a challenge that you've had to overcome in your career? And how did you go about doing that? Lots of challenges. I mean, countless and countless and countless challenges. I mean, I think it, the ones that stand out to me are absolutely kind of early stage in my career, feeling like I was doing all of the right stuff, but not moving forward. And again, as I said, I mentor a lot. And especially early stage, I see this a lot, especially from high achievers and people who want kind of the next step, but don't have a lot of the tools to be able to get there. And so I think about that a lot. And I love to to mentor on that. And, And some of the learnings that I had, because I felt the same way where high growth companies, there was so much change. I mean, I had I think I counted at one point 12 bosses in eight years <laughs> um, because, you know, CMOs, they are not that, you know, they're, they're historically <laughs> uh, the, I think, what is it? Shortest tenured chief executive of all of the C-levels. It's, it's a hard job. And so, I had multiple CMOs. I had multiple bosses. I was going from like at one point I was reporting into like a BDR manager. I mean, it was like almost every six months. And so I felt like very stifled in my career and couldn't, didn't feel like I was moving ahead. But as I just mentioned, as I was talking about some of those milestones, there's a lot that you can learn even in moving laterally um, and building. Um, And actually that has really shaped my career because I've had so much broad experience in in building multiple marketing functions. At the same time, I still had to push for myself and advocate for myself and find champions within the organization who could help me in that career progression. So I think that was definitely a challenge that I felt like I was overcoming kind of earlier stage. I think you know, another constant challenge that I've faced is really most of the time being the only woman executive in the room. (laughs) Uh, And that is still true today. It's been true for years and years and years and years. And I do remember kind of a very pivotal moment in my career when I walked into a room as an executive into a room full of men, all, you know, sales leaders or, or executives across the organization, all men. And hearing them speak And feeling that level of imposter syndrome coming in because I do not look the part. I do not sound the part. I do not dress the part. I always look like the youngest person in the room regardless. And, you know, feeling that level of imposter syndrome of I don't know that I belong here. And will that mute me in a sense? Like, will that make me feel so uncomfortable that I I will not speak up? And then realizing, number one... And I know this sounds kind of bad, but I'm smarter than a lot of these people in the room in in absolutely my area of expertise, right? Um, And I have something to say and I have a level of experience and perspective that they need uh, because they don't have it. And so it's not to toot my own horn or anything like that. It was just a realization of, no, I am going to speak up because it's best for the business. If I don't bring this up, this could be a lot of... I think bad consequences and negative decisions for the for the organization, um, and this is actually also why I believe really really passionately and why I love actually being in marketing. That marketing 
is a strategic driver of, of, of business growth overall and business strategy and has to absolutely have a seat at the table. I mean, I speak up when it comes to legal conversations like this, you know, chief legal officer is talking about various things. I absolutely have something to say when HR is talking. I have something to say because marketing connects, as we've talked about, it connects a lot of these dots. There are so many pieces of marketing that need to be embedded into the lifeblood of an organization because we do. We have our finger on the pulse of what's happening in the market. How do we shape it? What's happening with our customers, right? What are their pain points? How do we solve this for them better? Like how do we either do acquisitions or how do we do product innovation to help drive some of the solutions for what they're needing? So Anyway, long story short, that's been a challenge that I've had to overcome is kind of some of the imposter syndrome and also feeling like uh, a little bit intimidated by by basically being the only one in the room. I've, I got over that pretty quickly <laughs> um, and absolutely have found my voice, probably to the extent where people like, you know, I probably talk too much <laughs> when it comes to uh, executive conversations. But I think that's so important, though, is to find that inner, what is it that drives you to be able to feel confident enough to say whatever it is that needs to be said? And we all have to learn that, right? We all have to overcome that imposter syndrome. And I don't think there's anybody in the world who doesn't have a little bit of imposter syndrome like you hear about it so often that's you take on a new role or you enter a new team all of that like it impacts how you do your job day to day and it can positively or negatively impact other people if you don't choose to stand up yeah absolutely yeah and it's just I love that it is there's so much awareness around it now. It doesn't necessarily negate, obviously, what people are feeling and and the fact that there is still something to overcome but at the same time I mean this was just something again, 10, 15, 20 years ago was never discussed and never really seen as an issue. Um, And so I love, obviously, just kind of the transparency and the awareness that everyone's struggling through this. We're all human. And, you know, there's, there's things that we all need to overcome and we can all support each other in that. Absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, that you're often, you've had experiences where you're the only woman in the room. Do you feel that you've had any bias that you've experienced as a woman in tech? And then how do you kind of overcome some of those? So absolutely. I always feel like I've had to overcome some level of unconscious bias or even outright bias <laughs> just because I've, I've grown up in my career understanding and just realizing that I always have something to prove, that I will always be underestimated when you either look at me on paper or look at me in person. I just I do not look or sound or fit the part necessarily and that I have to prove myself, whereas other people might be handed something um, and are just kind of immediately given that level of credibility and trust. And I don't think that stopped me, actually. It's it's something that I don't feel like I'm a victim or I don't feel like it's a crutch for me. I'm just, it's just an understanding of I'm going to come in and I'm going to absolutely, you know, that that's kind of not my problem. I'm going to come in as a force to be reckoned with because I have a perspective and I have the experience and I have a point of view that I think is actually very, very important for the business. And so just understanding that, yes, conscious or unconscious bias will be there. That's their problem. They're going to have to, they should figure out how to overcome that. They should figure out how to, how to be better around some of those pieces, but also understand, hey, I'm going to prove them wrong, uh, whether they have this bias or not, um, because I absolutely, I feel confident in what I'm bringing to the table. 
And I think that's that's the mentality we all have to have, right? Is that we have, just have to find that confidence, however it is, even if it's that you stand outside the room before you go in and do the power poses to like feel that confidence before you go in. I think we all have to try and think through how can we be the most confident in those situations. Yeah. And for me, a lot of it is just preparation, right? Um, I, I don't want to feel like I am being put on a hot seat where I feel completely unprepared to be able to answer their questions. So coming in prepared with having a point of view and having a perspective on, you know, here's what I want to talk about, or here's an idea that I have, or here's the performance that my team has done over the last quarter or month or whatnot. And then potentially always trying to be a step ahead a little bit of here's what I think they're going to ask, or here's some of the gaps in in the organization or in my strategy that I need to make sure that I have some level of an answer for and making sure that you're as prepared as possible. Um, but also, you know, kind of being able to defer if you don't have that of absolutely great question. I'll come back to you on that. So an understanding, like, don't, don't let that shake your, your, your confidence or, create that level of self-doubt of maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I think preparation is absolutely key to help overcome some of that, some of those challenges. And the deferral, I think, is it's such a powerful technique. And it actually, I think, makes people look more intelligent when you defer and say, hey, I will find out and I will come back. It's better than trying to make it up on the spot and then getting called out for that or losing your cool and feeling super flustered um, for no reason. I mean, there can't be the expectation that you know every possible thing. And so deferral, deferral works as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, work-life balance. You're, you're a mom and you have kids. So how do you maintain what is a very high demand job as a CMO with what you need to do for your household? Yeah, this is, I love this question. And again, because I've been a working mom um, for a good amount of my career, it's something where I am unwilling to put my work before my family in every circumstance. And, and I talk about this a lot. There is a balance. In everything, there is a balance. In, in your relationship with your company, there's a, there's a give and a take, right? So you're giving, you're a huge asset, you're providing value to the company. And, and that's a huge part of career development and getting to an executive level. And even just job security is always showcasing your level of value to your organization. But at the same time, it's a give and a take. I always say that you need to be able to negotiate for what's important to you. One, prove your value, then negotiate. Speak up, right? Uh, and, and, and basically make sure you understand what's a priority for you at which stage in life, and that can change. But you have to advocate for yourself. And I see this as as actually hugely important. Again, it's something I mentor on. It's something I speak on. And it's something that I practice in my own career and in my own life. Because number one, if you if you prove value to your organization, they will they will absolutely work with you and and showcase a level of flexibility for you because you're mission critical. And that's something that I've been able to do kind of at all stages. And so for a while, it was I you know I had my first son. And worked at a great company and again, great relationship. And again, sometimes you have to look at the company you're working um, for and just make sure not only are you proving value, but that they are a company whose values align with yours. And I was working in a really fantastic company and, you know, negotiated 
basically when I, I, I had my mat leave, took the whole thing. Absolutely. Uh, hugely recommend doing that always because you're never going to get that time back. But I negotiated basically, and this was before hybrid work, but working from the office two days a week, working from home two days a week, and then having a day off. I did that for the f- whole first year of my uh, of my firstborn's life, which was awesome. It was such a great cadence. It was awesome because I feel like I was present for my son um, and really being able to enjoy some of those first years. With my second son, I actually did a career move in actually about about the time of my mat leave. And so it was something where, again, everything's a give and a take. Everything's a balance. At that point, I had a lot of help. I had both grandmas, you know, who were absolutely, you know, basically helping with childcare. And so I felt super, super comfortable with cutting my mat leave a little bit short. I did three months instead of four months and and wanted to take a step up in my career and decided that, you know what, I'm going to take on more work, more responsibility, even do a commute. But I feel better. My pregnancy was easier. I was recovering, you know, more, just felt more physically healthy and, and all of those things. And again, it's a give and a take. I felt like I wanted to take a step up in my career. I felt really good about kind of my childcare situation and then decided to take that step. At another point in time, you know, I had medical issues. I I actually had breast cancer at age 35, which was absolutely insane. And again, decided that it was really good for me to actually continue working through all of my treatment. And so I was doing chemo and I think... Two or three weeks after my first chemo round, I went to London for one of our major uh, customer events to produce that and then came home and did another round of chemo and then went to Las Vegas for another conference, um, another huge customer conference. And then I think after my fourth round of chemo, went to Dreamforce and, and did our giant, you know, multi-million dollar production at Dreamforce. I mean, even with radiation, it was every single day. I remember my last second to last day of radiation, I went to the hospital in the morning was on work calls, literally on the way to the hospital, left the hospital, went straight to the airport, went straight to a meeting in San Francisco for a day, came back. And then the next morning did my last round of radiation. And that was actually something that I decided was a priority for me as I wanted to actually continue to work and continue to move forward in my career rather than completely take a step back from working during the treatment. And it worked for me. It doesn't work for everyone. But at that point, I felt like I needed that because it was a distraction and it was kind of a purpose outside of just feeling like I was sick because I didn't want to be thought of or seen as like or feel like just a cancer patient or a chemo patient. And so did that and traveled internationally, domestically, I mean, every month, like even a few times a week for the whole first year of treatment and surgeries. And then about a year later, my body started to shut down. I basically had to do like an emergency surgery. And my husband and I looked at each other and he said, I think you need a break. I think your body's telling you to take a break. It's been a lot, (laughs) a lot to go through. And again, my company at the time was just, was fantastic. And part of it was the value that I showed, obviously to the organization. And part of it was the values that coincided with mine. And they you know, I was about to quit and they actually said, why don't you take a sabbatical? And then you can decide, right? Like after three months, after six months, then decide if you want to come back. And I did. And it was actually really fantastic. And when I came back um, after actually seven months, kind of started out, didn't really have a team because they had moved everyone under. I don't remember if this is when you joined or not. But then a, a month after, again, started to really prove myself and 
you know, got an even bigger role in an even bigger team than when I had left. And so all that to say, <laughs> one, work-life balance looks very, very different for every single person and depending on where you are in your phase of life. There are times when you maybe want to lean in more to your career. Maybe there's times when you want to pull back. And all of that is okay, and that's your decision. Um, and you should really figure out like what's important to you and for which phase of your life, because it's also not forever. And then, you know, the second is just making sure that you align with your company. They align with you in terms of your values, but that you are constantly proving your value because then you can negotiate for flexible work schedule. You can, you know, you could even I, I negotiated for a sabbatical. Um also, you know, more pay, right? More, more vacation. Like there's lots and lots of things that you can negotiate for based off of what's important to you and what you need for that phase of life. So sorry, long answer, <laughs> but something again, I'm hugely passionate about. Well, and, and you are truly a superwoman to have like had that gone through that experience and continued to work. Like that is, that's incredible. Like that is just, that is so much to balance. <laughs> And that's what I was saying. Like, that is not for everyone. I would not say to everyone to go do that. It worked for me. That was something that I I needed, honestly. Um, And I think it actually, I think it actually powered me through kind of, you know, all of the sickness and and all of those kind of downtimes. Oh, that totally makes sense. And it is, you know, work-life balance is very much where, what is, what can you handle personally? And what do you want to handle personally? And what's, where do you find that balance? And that's why it's a balance because, it's not something that the company can tell you, this is what work-life balance looks like. So you clock in at this time, you clock out at this time and take your 15 minute lunch. Like you can't, the company can't do that. No company can do that for you. It's true. And you do have to be your own advocate. Again, it's a give and take. And you need to understand that you have a relationship with your co- your company. You have a certain amount that you need to give them. Obviously there's expectations of your role. Showcase that, showcase that you can kill it, showcase that you can be dependable, that you're not going to be completely MIA when they need something like deliver on what it is, over deliver on what it is that they're expecting of you. But then at the same time, you have to ask and you have to advocate for yourself of like, um, I'm sorry, no, I'm not going to kill myself for this job. You know, and I don't think that's what they're expecting of you. At least I hope that's not what they're expecting of you. But you're going to need to ask and advocate for, you know what, this is what I need. And again, if all of those things align, then that's that's where you negotiate. That's where you have negotiating power and, and the leverage. And if not, find a company that does, um, that does align with you. Well, that ties really good into my next question, which is what is it, you know, when you're, you've talked a little bit about company values and company culture, what is it that you find really important when you're evaluating a company for their values or their culture, whether it's, you know, for a job or even, you know, just a partner to partner with your organization? Yeah. And I think for me, there's a few things I look for in a company just to make sure that it's a good fit. Um, I do look for really, really good product market fit and a great market that's growing, right? Um, you don't want to be, you know, in with a product that, that's not actually proving any sort of value to customers or in an industry that's potentially not, not necessarily going to grow or going to have some pretty hard times. I look for customer satisfaction um, and like, what do customers think about the product? How, how well do you know the customers? How, how highly do they speak of your product? Like, is there a lot of stickiness? And, and do customers love the product? I think that's that's very, very telling. I do look at the executive team, the leadership, and just overall, because company values and company culture 
it means something different to, I feel like, every company and every every leadership team. But it's the people who really exemplify, like where you can see exactly just in the conversations and in, in their leadership style and what they f- choose to focus on. You can really see what those values are um, and how they drive company culture from there. So I, I definitely take a look at kind of that leadership team um, and, and how they kind of walk the walk in a sense. I look at, is marketing going to be a strategic driver of the organization? Or is it a supporting function? Um, that is something that I look at as well, just in, because, again, my role, I'm as I mentioned, I think marketing does need to be in, embedded into all of the aspects um, and, and need to have the appropriate level of visibility and authority and partnership across an organization to be successful. Some of those things that I look at, I also try and do any sort of like back channeling. I do look at things like, G2 and Glassdoor and and some of those things just to try and get understanding. However, there's always kind of a one person's experience, right? Or a couple of people's experience kind of thing. And so I try and, like I said, I try and feel it out. You really never know going into an organization exactly what it's going to be like. And I'm used to a lot of just high growth companies where everything is a mess and it's very chaotic. But again, if you have that level of partnership, and again, that's why I look very closely at the leadership team and have a lot of conversations with the interviewing team and things like that to get an understanding of, is there at least an opportunity where one, there's openness to hearing multiple perspectives and ideas um, on how to solve these things to that it is a kind of team first mentality, that there's a lack of egos, that there's that lack of, you know, drama and like alliances and those kinds of things of like, no, we're going to put down all personal biases or perspectives or anything like that. We're just going to work together as a team to try and figure this out. And I'm, you know, you're willing to call me out. I'm willing to call you out. No personal offense, but we're going to figure things out. And I want to poke holes and you can poke holes and let's figure out a solution to move forward. And there's a lot of that, I feel like, in terms of getting an understanding of how do people resolve conflict? How do how does work get done? Is there an operating system? Is there structure? Like what needs to be fixed and what's the appetite for innovation in being able to drive some of this change? So things are never perfect and I don't ever, ever expect it to be. I often like to be that driving force of change if there is an openness to, you know, across the organization for that change. So those are some of the things that I look for. That's, that's perfect. I think that that is like, sometimes being the voice of change can be a very empowering seat to sit in as well, you know, especially when people are receptive to it. It's hard. And that, and that's why, you know, you talk about, we talked about challenges. I feel like even early on in my career, I felt like I was a squeaky wheel. I was even told it was a squeaky wheel. (laughs) And that was some of what I was doing because Again, building building um, in in gaps, like both figuring out there's problem areas, there's gaps in an area, and then starting to try and build a solution around it. You are going to notice things, and you're going to poke holes, and you're potentially going to make people not that happy because you're you're you know kind of poking at their baby a little bit. <laughs> but I think in terms of culture, if there is that openness and transparency of, you're right you know, there is probably a better way to to do this. Maybe there's a better way that we can solve this problem that is more effective, more efficient. And if there is that openness and lack of egos, there's a lot, there's a lot that can be done in terms of some of that change management. And that I think helps drive a really good culture of innovation and transparency and good collaboration and kind of all those things that you want to look for and that you feel like 
allows you to be impactful and successful within an organization. Absolutely. Well, before we kind of close our call, last question is, what is your piece of advice that you would give to a woman who's considering a career in SaaS right now? (laughs) Uh, What is my piece of advice? I mean, I would have to go back to all of the things that I just said, which is figure out how to find your value and showcase that value very, very quickly. Um, And oftentimes, when I'm, when I'm advising my team or even myself, if I'm trying to come into an organization or whatnot, it's what can you do? What is some of the lowest hanging fruit that you can make an immediate impact with? Um, or even as you're starting to solve some of those problems that you're coming into, figure out how can you drive enough, even quick fixes to start to showcase immediate value while also building out some of your longer term vision and strategy But it is that immediate value and continuous value that you can showcase coming into an organization that's hugely helpful that allows for then. So number one, I think, you know, showcase, know your value and showcase it. And number two, find your voice, because that allows for you to um, speak up and actually be more of a strategic driver in the organization because you've been able to prove the value, you've proven that credibility, you've showcased that you're an expert and that you can you can drive results. And it gives you that seat at the table. But find your voice both for your role and your organization of how do you continue to, to create change in an organization and positive change and impact, but also finding your voice for yourself and it allows for you to then negotiate for what's important to you. So those would probably be the two pieces of advice that I think go hand in hand. It's not even for anyone just in SaaS. I would say that that's important probably anywhere you go, but I think it's hugely applicable in SaaS, especially right now in such a crazy and chaotic environment. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. Those are those are really good tips no matter what field you're in, but specifically in this chaos that we are all kind of living in right now, for sure, making sure that that value is you every day, you want to show some value, you want to bring your value to the table, whatever that might be. And that's so important. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Esther. It was really great getting to catch up with you. And I hope everybody enjoyed hearing from you as much as I did. Thanks, Anne. Appreciate you having me. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Sassy. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or join us on LinkedIn at Sassy Podcast to stay in the know about future episodes and guests.